If you've been in the Bellingham area for any amount of time, you know that this area is known for her trails, her hiking trails, her walking trails. I believe Bellingham has 72 different types of trails. Now, if you've looked them up, you'll notice about two-thirds of them will be rated easy or moderate, meaning it's easier to walk or to hike them. You know some of the names, Zuanich Family Park. Uh, There's the Lake Patton Single Track. There's the Stimson Family Trail. These are are easy or more moderate trails. In our current sermon series, we're almost on this type of hike, hiking through 1 Peter, and much of it is easy and much of it is moderate. But some trails are less gentle. We might call them difficult. In the American Southwest, for example, there's a place called the Canyonlands National Park, and that hosts an aspect of, it, of, of land dubbed the Maze District. And it's described as, quote, a rock wonderland characterized by deep labyrinth-like canyons and standing rocks reaching skyward above. It's been called one of the most remote and inaccessible parts of the United States. The National Park Service notes that one should plan for a three-day minimum hiking in this area. You could lose a week there easily. A warning in bold type on the website says, we strongly recommend using a map. GPS units frequently lead people astray. Well, our message this morning comes from 1 Peter again. It's chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. These passages are more of a maze district than they are a family trail. As we go through this passage, you need to know that we can go down numerous paths in this passage. We can break down or get lost entirely in this passage. And I say that because it's possible to miss the beauty of the message and get bogged down in the web of details. So here's what I want you to keep in mind. Here is your map for today. Jesus Christ achieved a tremendous victory. Jesus Christ achieved a tremendous victory. That is our map in this passage. And with that in mind, we're going to walk out three landmarks of his victory as we pursue these truths. This is important because you and I, we need to hear about this win that Jesus Christ won. It's very easy to look at the world around us and grow discouraged and frustrated, and confused. What's happening to this country? What's going on in this world? It's almost as though every time we turn on the TV or we watch the news, the world has found some new way of promoting evil, new ideas to promote sin. That can wear on us. We can grow discouraged. To that perception, believer, if you've felt that, Peter points to Christ. The victory he achieved in the past is the promise for our future. And keep your eye on that victory. Remember, that is our map. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah 
during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. A number of trails branching off through that passage. We'll begin with our first landmark this morning. It's really the nature of his victory. How did Jesus achieve it? In verse 18, he achieved it through suffering. Christ's victory suffered. Verse 18 is really a wonderful gospel message. It describes Jesus in three main ways. He's our substitute, our sacrifice, and our Savior. Jesus is our sacrifice. Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Some of your Bibles say that he suffered for sins once for all. That's probably a better translation. Verse 18 is picking up what we read in verse 17 last week. The same word is used. that We were suffering or we are suffering. Jesus suffered. You may suffer for doing what is right. Christ also suffered for doing what was right. And once again, here Peter is pointing us to Jesus Christ. Notice here that as we struggle, he's telling us not to look deep down inside to try to find the solution within us. He's not saying you need to to muster up courage or put your hope in some message or some mentor. He says, look to Jesus. Back in chapter 2, verse 21, he, quote, left you an example to follow in his steps. But note that while this passage is about the suffering of Jesus, it's much more about his victory. Remember our map. Certainly we are to imitate his example. But I think this particular passage is less of a C and B, where his suffering is something that we're supposed to go out and do, but rather it's more of a know and go, where we're to learn about this from Jesus, we're to understand his victory, comprehend his victory, then let that be our grounds for suffering. We might say it this way, that suffering is part of the plan. It's part of the plan for Jesus, it's part of the plan for the Christian. But we need to remember that victory comes through suffering. Last week, we learned in verse 17 of the Christian's experience. Now in verse 18, it's picking up off of that, applying it to Jesus. Christ also suffered. He also suffered according to God's will. He also suffered doing what is right. And as our sacrifice, he suffered for our sins. And that is our biggest problem, our sins. It's in you. It's in me. We can't get it out of us. It's like viewing an ocean from an airplane where we can see the, this expanse before us, below, off into the horizon and beyond. And we can't see past the surface to the depths of that ocean. We can't possibly know the depth of our sin. Some oceans are five miles deep. The the blackest of a silent darkness pervades those places. So it is in the core of our soul. That is the condition of man. 
We hardly know the extent of it. And thankfully, God permits us to see but a glimpse of it and not all of it, lest we crumble before his holiness. But Jesus Christ came as our sacrifice for that sin. He died as our substitute. Dying for all of that sin, the breadth of it and the depth of it, Jesus died for it. He suffered in our place. In verse 18, we are the unjust or the unrighteous. Jesus is the just or the righteous. And he died as a sacrifice for you and for me. And in the Old Testament, underneath that Jewish law, a a high priest had to go once a year and, and offer a sacrifice. It was called the Day of Atonement. On your calendar, you can find it next month. It's called Yom Kippur. That was what they did on that day under the Old Testament law. It was a time to sacrifice. And they had to sacrifice blood. It was a blood sacrifice that would atone for sins of the people. But if we were right a moment ago about the vast reaches of our sin, if it is indeed as big and as deep as an ocean, what do you think happened when that priest came down from that sacrifice and dwelt again among the people? Almost immediately, another sacrifice was needed. Because what man does not sin? More sin needing more sacrifice. Peter says that Jesus gave himself as the sacrifice and as the substitute. He suffered for sins once for all. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 24 says it this way, Nor was it that Jesus would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Jesus would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now... Once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sins by the sacrifice of himself. To say it another way, he put the priest out of work. As the substitute, he made it that you do not need to pay the price for your sin. He paid it with his sacrifice instead. And that means then this morning that he can be your savior so that he might bring you to God, the text reads. Jesus is the bringer. That word takes on a noun here, and it really could be translated as the introducer. Um, I've read somewhere that royal courts used to have an official who would determine uh, who could come in to see the king and, and who was not allowed, and they bore this name. They were the introducer. It's a great picture of what Jesus does for us before God the Father. Jesus does that. He saves us from the penalty of sin. He brings us to God. And he does this for any, for all who repent of their sin and turn from it, for all who believe upon him. If you believe that he is your sacrifice and you believe that he is your substitute, he will be your savior. Jesus achieved a tremendous victory for you if you repent and trust in him. This victory, though, note, It came by suffering. And that's an important point that we need to mention as we discuss the Christian faith. You see, becoming a Christian doesn't result in pain-free living. Rather, through suffering, we will enjoy victory, just as Jesus did. And if we're honest, truth be told, 
Becoming a Christian sometimes makes life more difficult. It brings a new layer of suffering. It could be persecution from other people. It could be that wrestling with indwelling sin as we grow and we mature in our faith. It could be our conscience speaking louder to us. But all the while, despite that, we now have Jesus Christ. A very real relationship and our guide on this journey. So what do you choose? Do you want to go easy, an easy life without Christ? Or suffering with Christ gained? One of those is victory and one of those is not. His victory came through suffering. Well, his victory was also announced. It's our second point this morning. Not only was Christ's victory suffered, Christ's victory is announced. Picking up at the end of verse 18, Jesus was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits, now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now Martin Luther was a pretty confident guy. I read someone once wrote he was a pretty dogmatic guy. Listen to what he writes about this passage, quote, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. It's very rich considering the character and the person of Martin Luther. Now, each part of this passage I just read is wrought with challenges. I want to make a few remarks then concerning these difficult passages, not only here, but also as we encounter them in the Bible. Whenever we encounter these passages, we need to remember to give grace to different viewpoints. This passage is notoriously hard to interpret. The gospel doesn't depend on it, thankfully. And there's nothing wrong with being confident in conclusions that you draw, just as long as we remember to give grace to others who are confident. Secondly, as we work through this, there's different views on what this means, and every view has its problems, including the one I'll set forth to you today. I suppose if there weren't any problems with one of the views, we wouldn't have so many. I think thirdly, too, we need to remember to keep a really tight grip on the context. There's a lot of small trails that are going to veer off of this passage here, but remember to keep hold of the map. What do we say? Jesus Christ achieved a tremendous victory. That's the map. That's the big passage. So as we get stuck on little trails here, we need to remember the big passage and don't go to the GPS. All right, the end of verse 18, Jesus is put to death in the flesh and he's made alive in the spirit. That's a contrast. It's a contrast between the flesh and the spirit. Though the body of Jesus lay in a tomb, Jesus was not dead Resurrection will confirm this, in fact. Later, if you look down to verse 21, resurrection will mean that he died in the flesh, and it'll mean then that he was made alive in the flesh. But we're not quite there yet. In our verse, he's made alive in the spirit, going and proclaiming to spirits now in prison. This is where the underbrush on our trail gets thick. What did Jesus proclaim? When did he do it? Who are these spirits? And what is this prison? 
Well, including verse 20, there are three main views on this passage. The first, Jesus preached repentance through Noah. In this view, the spirits are human beings. They're in the time of Noah, as Noah's working on the ark, perhaps. And they are imprisoned in sin. A second view, Jesus preached repentance to those who perished in the flood. In this view, the spirits are also human souls. The prison is Hades. Those who died in the flood have gone to Hades. And Jesus goes there after his death, uh, perhaps before he is resurrected in a resurrected body or after his resurrection. The third view, Jesus proclaimed victory to fallen angels. Angels are the spirits of verse 19, fallen angels. Their prison results from their conduct in the days of Noah. And again, he went there and proclaimed victory. He did this after his death, before his resurrection, or he did this some point after his resurrection. Well, I favor this third view for three main reasons. I think, first of all, that the spirits refer to fallen angels and not human souls. Almost without exception, in the New Testament, the word spirits refers to angels. The Gospels in particular emphasize this. In our passage, they would be fallen angels or satanic angels in particular. And you notice in verse 20 that they were disobedient to something. Well, that brings me then to the location and the reason for the prison. I believe they're in prison because of disobedience in the days of Noah. Now, something significant in the days of Noah happened in the angelic realm, either in the angelic realm or between the angelic realm and the human realm. At the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, Noah's flood is Genesis 7, at the beginning of Genesis 6, some see an unnatural sexual union between angels and between humans. In verse 1, men had daughters. In verse 2, sons of God, often interpreted as angels, they came along and took them as wives. They then produced a people called the Nephilim. The next verse, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only continually evil. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. It sounds as though evil has now reached its zenith. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from, excuse me, whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Something is going on here that's significant. And Peter confirms in his second letter, this is 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, a connection between some event and Noah, between some event involving angels and Noah's flood. And Peter writes, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. That word, hell, is pronounced Tartarus. It's the only time it's used in the Bible, one time. It's a very unique word. It's a very unique place among the underworld. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. 
and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So in Noah's day, some fallen angels did something exceptionally evil, and they were sent to a place called Tartarus as a result. Jude 6 writes, And the angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And there's that language, that language of domain or abode that supports this Genesis 6 theory of a sexual union. And this eternal bonds does sound quite a bit like a prison. I believe that Jesus proclaimed victory by his blood. And this word proclamation means announce. It means to make known. He's declaring his victory to these angels. A proclamation can be used certainly of a gospel proclamation. But this particular word Peter does not use for that. He has another word. If you're in your Bibles, chapter 4, verse 6. First Peter, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached. That's a different word than the word proclaim in our verse. If you want to go back to chapter 1, verse 12, Peter again uses a different word than proclaim. Those who preached, different word, those who preached the gospel came by the Holy Spirit. I believe that Jesus has announced good news. He did not preach the gospel. Not in this context. And this, by the way, is what victors traditionally do. They celebrate. They parade. They broadcast. In Colossians 2, verse 15, when God had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Christ. I think Jesus personally served notice that victory is achieved and the clock is ticking. So then, if we are all on different trails off the main one, we're going to bring it back. In summary, while Jesus' body was in the tomb, or at some point following his resurrection, he announced to fallen angels his victory. He put them on notice that whatever evil they did in Noah's day in connection to that global flood, nothing can stop God's redeeming grace. The God who sends the water provides salvation. That brings us to our next interpretive challenge, verse 21. Corresponding to that, Peter writes, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Wait a minute, Peter. Did Peter just say that I'm saved by baptism? To go and be with God forever, I just need to jump in the water? No, I don't think that's what Peter's saying. Peter says that what happens at baptism corresponds to what happened in the flood. We just need to answer what that question is. Well, the first word of verse 21 is basically the word antitype. Bringing it from the Greek word over to English, it basically sounds like antitype. That means that something in the Old Testament has served as a type. 
It's a symbol or a foreshadowing. Whenever this happens in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, you have its antitype or its fulfillment. Let me just give you another example. In the Exodus, you may recall that God's people did a lot of complaining. They complained about their food, and they complained about their water. They're in the wilderness, and they're complaining about that. So God sent fiery serpents among the people. I don't know about you. It's enough that he sent serpents, lest they be fiery serpents. That's an adjective we could do without. In fact, that's a whole new terror. That word in the Bible describes the color of the burning pain or the bite But God is a God of mercy. And in an act of mercy, he commanded Moses to forge this bronze serpent and put it on top of a pole. And anybody who was bitten by the serpents, the fiery serpents, and looked to this bronze serpent lived. It's an act of faith, an act of obedience. So that is the type, this bronze serpent on the pole looking to that serpent to live. The antitype, Jesus says, is himself lifted up. It's Jesus upon the cross. Those who look to Jesus lived. He says this much to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. John 3.16 is the next verse. So in a similar way, the flood is foreshadowing baptism. It's almost as though as Peter's writing along and, and instructing these people he's writing to, he mentions the flood and, and he thinks then of this baptism, this topic. Well, how so? Well, we know that baptism in and of itself is just not not in the sense of, of, of washing off. We know that that's what baptism is. Baptism is a, wa- is a washing. We, we wash off in baptism. We're in, in a washing. We are not removing dirt from flesh. And notice that Peter says it's not that. We know that washing works, but he's saying that baptism isn't mechanical. It's not magic. And Peter doesn't want us to think that just because we get into the waters of baptism that something magical has happened, that all of a sudden we're good with God because we jumped in the water. In the flood, God brought eight people safely through the water. Eight. That's it. Noah and his wife, and Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives. And then God sent the water. And that water brought a physical death. His enemies were literally washed away by water. God achieved a victory for Noah by washing away his enemies. In baptism, water brings death. When you went under the water, you died. Romans chapter 6 verse 4, you were buried with Christ into death. You died to sin, you died to the flesh, you died to yourself. But look at the contrast in verse 21. Baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience. This is the road that Peter wants to take here. This word appeal is really a pledge. It's a commitment to God that I'm going to give all of myself to you, Lord. Now, hopefully we do, after all, come up out of the water, right? 
It's the rest of Romans chapter 6, verse 4. As Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And Peter is just framing that in terms of conscience. We have a new conscience, a new conscience to live by. That's the heart of verse 21 right there. Peter gets into some details about what baptism is and what baptism isn't, but now we need to zoom out and we need to remember what's going on in this verse as a whole. Just for a moment, if you have your Bible, take out that middle section, all of those additional details. My Bible marks it off with dashes. This is helpful. Some of your Bibles are going to use commas. There's some translations that are going to start a new sentence at the end of that verse. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Skip to the end through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember, this passage has a lot of side trails in it, even in the heart of this verse. Don't lose the map. Don't forget the big picture. Baptism saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the victory. God used waters to destroy, and he used an ark to redeem. And in our day, God uses baptism to symbolize death, and he uses a resurrected Jesus to make alive. This passage then ministers, Lord willing, to believers suffering for their faith. That's Peter's audience in large part. Perhaps we suffer for our faith today. Perhaps we will suffer more for our faith in the years to come. This is an announcement of victory. Jesus proclaimed victory to the spirits. We learned that. You proclaimed victory in your baptism. And we learn here that Jesus, or God, is patient with those who are disobedient. It took time for Noah to build the ark. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. Noah, no doubt, received persecution in his day, both for his project, building this ark, and no doubt for his message. But through all that, God remained very patient with those people. And just to underscore it, attacks against God's man are attacks against God's plan. And that won't sit well with God. That's an illustration of his long-suffering or his patience with a lost world. God gave the lost time, and he gave the lost opportunity. And you may look around the world today, and you may see sinners living very long lives, very healthy lives, very affluent lives. Don't miss this. That is not the absence of God. That is the patience of God. He grants the lost time and opportunity to repent and come to Jesus in faith. We learn, secondly, that God redeems a few. How many converts did Noah have in his ministry? Zero. Did he fail? No. Remember, we discussed this last week in our message on wisdom and evangelism. Verses 18 through 21, they indicate a counterintuitive means that God uses in his planning. What sent Jesus to proclaim victory to the spirits? His death. How did God show his his mighty saving power? He redeemed one family. That's counterintuitive. You see, it's tempting to, to look to numbers 
and to look to, to strengths. That's how we view successes in Christianity. That's how we view successes in the church. The more powerful we appear, the more people we have, the more God must be blessing. The godless culture is always going to have more people. In this world, evil is going to possess power. But do not be deceived. God is redeeming. A few here and and one there. Every once in a while, we have what we might call a breakout of revival. But it's always by his pleasure to do redemption, often by just a few, a minority, a remnant. That's the victory of God. Well, so far in our message this morning, this has been a victory that Jesus has achieved through suffering. It's a victory that he has gone and announced or declared. And I want us to see thirdly that this is a victory that has been certified. Christ's victory certified. If you feel like in these past few moments you've gotten lost on one of those side trails, hopefully this is familiar terrain again. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now it's sounding familiar. Jesus is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. That that followed his resurrection. The end of verse 1, his victory is achieved. It's his resurrection. This is a preview of what's to come for you and I. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, God has not only raised up the Lord, but will raise us up through his power. Peter witnessed his resurrection. An eyewitness to the Lord. And in verse 22, Peter now elaborates on his victory over the spiritual realm. We already discussed this in part in verse 19. Angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to Christ, he writes. All three of those words refer to angels, fallen angels at that, demonic forces. It wouldn't make sense if they were heavenly. Again, we read Colossians 2 verse 15 earlier. It explains this. God disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them. He triumphed over them through Christ. And this Jesus, now the victor, is at the right hand of God. His reward and a reward that he wishes to share with us. Jesus is the victor. He suffered for it, he announced it, and he certified it. And someone may well ask, so what did Jesus do while he was in the tomb? He went to work. It might look like a sealed tomb, meaning the, the, the man inside is dead, It's easy to confuse a cold, massive stone, believing that the person buried inside is no longer alive, but no, he is off on a victory tour. And even though Jesus may have looked like he lost, by no means did he lose. Darkness is no emperor and death is no end. So for the believer who suffers, who doubts, who wonders, is this it? Is this the Christian life? Jesus won the victory. He's your true north. He is your map for navigating all the winding trails in this life. And he alone is your promise of victory. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, thank you for being our sacrifice and our substitute and our Savior. Lord Jesus, thank you for achieving a victory that by no means could we achieve on our own. We thank you for your great love for us, for your faithful obedience to your Father. And we thank you that you were coming again to call us to be home with you. I pray for those here this morning, Father, who are struggling with doubts and discouragement, who feel the press of this culture weighing heavy on their souls. Lord, I pray that you would bless them with full knowledge and complete confidence of victory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.